By the 1950s, American music had been on a fascinating journey, rolling out of the Appalachian Mountains and into southern cities, drifting out of the cotton plantations of the South, winding its way up from New Orleans along the Mississippi Delta, carried along many musical creeks and tributaries and rivers, rolling its way along mysterious trails past the crossroads and chugging its way across railroad lines. American music had evolved and grown and changed, just like the culture that produced it. We've seen the rise of jazz in its different forms and heard the echoes of slavery in the blues, as it evolved from country blues of Robert Johnson and Huddy Ledbetter to the electric blues of Muddy Waters and B.B. King, and the evolution of country music as it grew out of English, Scottish, and Welsh ballads into the slick, urbanized sound of Nashville, or the juke-joint urban sounds of Hank Williams. In the few decades that led up to the mid-1950s, there were just a few more cobblestones that needed to be laid into the roadbed that ended with the birth of rock music. Among these were Western Swing and Rockabilly, and we'll begin our story here. Hey, bud, you got a spud? No, fool, but I got a coup. Now, I'm a feller with a heart of gold with the ways of a gentleman, I've been told. The kind of a feller that wouldn't even harm a flea. But if me and a certain character met, the guy that invented the cigarette, I'd murder that son of a gun in the first degree. Now, it ain't cause that I don't smoke myself. I don't reckon they hinder your health. I've smoked them all my life, and I ain't dead yet. But nicotine slaves are all the same at a petting party or a poker game. Everything's got to stop while they have that cigarette. Western swing is ballroom dance music with a western twist. Substitute the big brass and the woodwind sound from East Coast swing, and you've got that western sound. Mainly, it was played by musicians that hailed from Texas and Oklahoma. Betty Goodman's and Glenn Miller's counterparts in western swing were guys like Bob Wills, Johnny Lee Wills, his cousin, and Leon McAuliffe. It really became important in the Tulsa area of Oklahoma. As a style, you can hear American songbooks styled pop, the blues, traditional jazz, Dixieland, traditional folk and fiddle, ragtime, and there's even a few songs that have hints of classical music poking out around the edges. The most popular Western swing band got their start in 1929 and ultimately were Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys. These guys had a long 50-year stretch in the 1970s, but got their start as a trio called the Wills Fiddle Band, playing gigs in Fort Worth at a place called the Crystal Springs Dance Pavilion. By 1933, Bob had moved his band out to Waco where he perfected their sound a blend of country, jazz, and big band with prominent fiddle playing tossed in for ultimate coolness. Their biggest hits date all the way back to 1938 and was called New San Antonio Rose. Wills once even said, Rock and roll? Why, man, that's the same kind of music we've been playing here since 1928. Other big songs from them were Maiden's Prayer and Faded Love. Like everything else we'd seen, radio, 
made the audience. Bob broadcasted his hugely popular dance music across the Southwest using the powerful signal from Tulsa's powerful 50,000-watt KVOO radio station to do it. Besides Bob Wills, other successful Western swing groups included Milton Brown and his musical Brownies, Spade Cooley and his orchestra, and Hank Thompson and his Brazos Valley Boys. Crazy about sugar. You're a cracker jack, dressed up in your new silk sugar sack, your little booger lies complete. Hillbilly Boogie is another immediate ancestor in Rock's family tree. A group of country musicians like Moon Mullican, the Delmore Brothers, Tennessee Ernie Ford, Speedy West, and Jimmy Bryant all played something called Hillbilly Boogie. Think of it like country, with the boogie slap bass bottom and hillbilly vocals on top. Like Western Swing, Hillbilly Boogie dates back to the early 1930s. The first major hit of its kind was a tune called Guitar Boogie by Arthur Smith's Hot Quintet. first cousin to country music, rockabilly was distinctive in several ways. The song structures were simpler. They had simpler chord progressions, lyrics, and arrangements. The beat was faster, and the rhythm was much more dominant. Singers had a rougher edge, and their performances were a lot more flamboyant. In 1950, Tennessee Ernie Ford had a number one hit called Shotgun Boogie. Bird stands in the corner where the barrels are straight. I look out the window and over the gate. The big fat rabbits are jumping in the grass. Wait till they hear my old shotgun blast. More paving stones on the trail towards the rise of rock and roll. Of all the musical prophets predicting the arrival of rock and roll, you might think of Rockabilly as Rock's John the Baptist preparing a way in the desert for the coming of the teenage messiah. See the USA in your Chevrolet. America's asking you to call. Drive your Chevrolet through the USA. America's the greatest land of all On a highway or a road along a levee Performance is sweeter, nothing can beat her Life is completer in a Chevy So make a date today to see the USA See it in your Chevrolet Let's drop into the late 1940s and check out a band called the Maddox Brothers and Rose. To my story, the girl that lives a single life, lives a life of glory. 
Cause my heart was lonely Then one day I left him flat And super alimony From the Sand Mountain region of Alabama They're the first group we can easily recognize As rockabilly artists Listen to their song Pay Me Alimony from 1950 On this track they show their country proto-punk side and were now within spitting distance of rock and roll. Their music had a killer honky-tonk feel with a heavy manic bottom end and they like it loud. Rockabilly is a blend of bluegrass with the glimmer and glint of early rock seeping through its pores. Even the name suggests it. Hillbilly, which was the early name for country music if you remember back to an earlier episode in this podcast about the rise of country music and rock from rock and roll. Barbara Pittman, an early rockabilly singer, spoke at Paul Allen's Mopoc, the Museum of Pop, the Museum of Pop Culture, and talked about how a lot of the early rockabilly players felt about that term rockabilly. She said, "Rockabilly was actually an insult to the southern rockers at that time. It was their way of calling us Hillbillies. Rockabilly added strong, loud rhythms, southern twang, and plenty of tape echo to the vibe that blended western swing and guitar boogie had already started. By and by, guys like Carl Perkins and Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis added to the sound by adding more instruments and adding harmonies behind the vocals. Other early rockers like Howlin' Wolf, Junior Parker, and Arthur Crudup all left their mark on Rockabilly. The Rockabilly train was a chugging along at high speed by 1956 when, unbelievably, on a single weekend in January, Johnny Cash's Folsom Prison Blues I'm stuck in Folsom Prison And time keeps dragging on Carl Perkins' Blue Suede Shoes And Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel. Well, since my baby left me, well, I found a new place to dwell. Well, it's down at the end of Lonely Street, that Heartbreak Hotel around me. We're all released. Incredible if you think about the lasting impression these three songs have left over the last 65 years. Television, technology that was rapidly expanding into homes all over America in these years, had a lot to do with that. Elvis first performed Heartbreak Hotel on the Dorsey Brothers stage show in February, and Perkins debuted his Blue Suede Shoes performance on Ozark Jubilee, an ABC show that ran from 1955 to 1960. By the end of 56, and goodness gracious, Jerry Lee Lewis had broken through and in 1957, with two major hits, released Great Balls of Fire and Whole Lot of Shaking Going On. Here comes old Jerry Lee now, time traveling from the 1950s, and the Dewey Phillips show to talk to us and tell us about it. Pick and jacket, where'd you get that at? Down in Lansky's? That's <laughs> uh, a good plug. We all know our brother. I bought this jacket in New York City. In New York City. Right. Yeah, I understand you've been uptown about as far as you can get. You've been around that cyclone? Ain't it but a stone? I've been trying it. You know what a good <laughs> people, you know what a cyclone is? That thing when Jerry Lee gets to New York, he's got to hit that honeycomb island out there, you know. Gets on this cotton picking thing that just goes up and down, man, up and down. <laughs> I understand a whole lot of shaking uh, sold about a million five hundred thousand. Is that right? 
I believe so. Well, you know, that's, that's you know what's been wearing me here for the last three or four weeks? What the heck are you gonna get me for Christmas? Well, I, I haven't thought Christmas. too much about it, Mr. Phillips, but you can't ever tell what a lab will come up with. Well, uh, what, what have you been hearing about these great balls of fire record all over the country? Been here a lot, Well, well it seems to be moving along uh, pretty good. I understand it's breaking all over the country. But right now, good people, old Jerry D. Lewis, he's been on Steve Allen's show, he's been on Dick Clark's show, but right now he's on one of the hottest cotton-picking shows in the country. That's sir, the Dear Phillips show. You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain You make me live as a man insane You broke my wind, but what a thrill Getting this gear wreckage to quit and balls of fire I let you live all I thought it was funny You keep it on and you move me, honey I take my mind, but it's fine so Rockabilly was king of the hill for the years 57 to 1960, pretty much ruling radio on the pop stations. In 1958, Eddie Cochran had a major Rockabilly hit with his song, Summertime Blues. He followed it up with two more hits in 58 and 59. Ironically, in 1960, he scored another hit with Three Steps to Heaven. He'd recently turned 21 and he was touring in the UK. Now there three steps to heaven, are three, three steps to heaven. Steps to heaven. Just listen to and you will plainly see And as life travels on and things do go wrong Just follow steps one, two and three When the taxi he was riding in crashed into a light post, killing him instantly Step two she falls unlovable with you Step three You kiss and hold her tightly Yeah, that sure seems like heaven to me Unique in so many ways, in a music career that lasted for what seems like merely an instant, Buddy Holly left a deep, lasting imprint on American music, too. Tall and thin, with a Revenge of the Nerds look around him and a recording career that only lasted about 18 months, Buddy achieved more in his 22 years than many people do in a much longer lifetime. In just a year and a half, he'd recorded 50 songs, most of them his own. His first composition was Peggy Sue. Not a bad place to start, either. Though his life was short, Holly's shadow was very long. He influenced rock musicians in every decade since his own time, including the Beatles and the Stones, Elton John, Marshall Crenshaw, Bob Dylan, Don McLean, Eric Clapton, Linda Ronstadt, Cliff Richard, 
and clear down to more recent artists like Weezer, whose first hit was called Just Like Buddy Holly. Besides writing perfectly beautiful two-minute diamonds, it was also Buddy Holly that invented the basic rock band format we've known all these years now. You know the one, two guitars, bass, and drums. He was also the first artist to use tape echo and to double-track his voice. Now, being a Texan, Buddy was not used to the cutting winter cold that he encountered while on tour in February 1959. He was doing the winter dance party tour arranged by a totally incompetent promoter who probably couldn't route himself out of bed in the morning, in a bus, with no heating, in the days before the interstate highways even existed. It was so cold that people on that bus kept getting sick, and one of the drummers actually got his feet frostbitten. Along from the tour from hell were a number of early rockers, including the Big Bopper and Richie Valens back and forth retracing the same territories in a nor-rhyme-nor-reason circuit. One night there was a show in Minnesota, the next night in Iowa, the third night back in Minnesota again, and so forth. And absolutely no heed to making it any easier on the musicians, and temperatures were way down past freezing. So the bus travel had taken its toll, and Holly decided to charter a flight for the next leg. He didn't know that the pilot had very few air miles in experience. So, looking for a break from it, Holly decided to charter a flight after a show in Des Moines, Iowa. He had invited Valens and the Big Bopper to come along on the flight to Moorhead, Minnesota. It started snowing as they all made their way to the airport and the weather got worse from there. With limited visibility, the young 21-year-old pilot got lost in the clouds and the plane crashed and everyone died. This was the day that Don McLean sang about Bad news on the doorstep I couldn't take one more step I can't remember if I cried When I read about his widowed bride But something touched me deep inside The day the music died the day the music died in his song American Pie. After that, radio gradually quit playing Rockabilly. And it also didn't do the scene too much good when parents learned that Jerry Lee Lewis had just married his 13-year-old cousin. But that's not to say that Rockabilly's impact stopped being felt. Like a huge stone throw into a pond, its ripples seemed to spread out in a long, long way. In England, rockabilly styles were adopted by a group of teenagers called Teddy Boys. They adopted a quasi-uniform including Edwardian-style frock coats, tight black drainpipe trousers, and a soft-soled suede shoe that they called Bravel Creepers. Later in the 60s, Teddy Boys were then renamed Rockers. If you're familiar with either the Who's album Quadrophenia or the movie that came later, you're familiar with the mods and the rockers. But probably the most profound impact left over from the rockabilly years was the one it had on four lads from Liverpool, England, 
who called themselves the Beatles. We'll talk more about them later, but long after they broke up, each of the boys continued to pay tribute to the music that had started it all for them. John Lennon recorded an album of Rockabilly songs in 1975 called Rock and Roll, chock full of all his favorite boyhood songs. Once I had a little Spanish guitar My neighbors told me I could go pretty far Well, I came and I went And my guitar got bent But I discovered that the people who love In the 1980s, Paul recorded his song on his Tug of War album with his idol, Carl Perkins, and in 1999 released an album like John's called Run, Devil, Run. Ringo's You're 16 was recorded in 1973 and was a rockabilly cover. And George teamed up with Roy Orbison in their supergroup, The Traveling Wilburys. The rock and roll attitude, rebellion, sexuality, and freedom, is a rockabilly hand-me-down sweatshirt from Rock's Big Brother. However, the true rockers that came later were dyed-in-the-wool nonconformists and rebels. And there's a world of difference between someone like, say, Jim Morrison and then Kung Fu Elvis on the other side. Morrison's disgust for authority was the real thing. Elvis, on the other hand, had his picture taken at the White House next to Tricky Dick Richard Nixon. Compare that to many very public apologies that aging rockabilly artists made later for their antics in younger years. Also, Casey Single, right on the heels of his Warriors, reporting for spring training in St. Petersburg, Florida. Old Case feels pretty good about things. For example, Tommy Byrne, who helped the Yankees to the pennant last year. And the acquisition of Maury McDermott from Washington strengthens the pitching staff and makes Mr. Stengel even happier. Yogi Berra is inclined to agree with Casey as Hank Bauer and Bomber Bats burst in a melodious sound in training camp. 
Joe Collins puts first things first, as Phil Rizzuto looks hopeful. Could be the old professor is right, McDougald and Mandel and all could do it again. Baseball fans who are Giant fans turn out to see how Bill Rigney is making out with the Giants. How's Bill feel? Optimistic. On first, he has Whitey Lockman, first of all, and manager Rigney is high on his hurlers, too. Johnny Antonelli ought to win more and lose less in Bill's book. And Hoyt Wilhelm looks as sharp as he did two years ago when the Giants won the pennant. Such optimism is catching. Wes Westrom's caught it. Johnny Mize is back as a coach, and if he can teach the way he could hit, mm, boy. Well, the polo grounders are in shape. Al Dark looks his old self up there. Ditto Dusty Rhodes, and the one and only Willie Mays. Optimism it is. In a 2015 interview with The Guardian, Jerry Lee told this story. He said, I said, Elvis, I'm going to ask you one thing before we part company here. If you die, do you think you'd go to heaven or hell? And he got real red in the face, and then he got real white in the face, and he said, Jerry Lee, don't you ever say that to me again. Lewis continued saying, I was always worried whether I was going to heaven or hell. I still am. I worry about it before I go to bed. It's a very serious situation. I mean, you worry. When you breathe your last breath, where are you going to? 93 KHJ plays more music. And the hits just keep on coming. KHJ Los Angeles. Good golly, Miss Molly. Welcome to the latest edition of American Song, episode 13. All hail rock and roll. Having talked about rock's family tree, you really probably ought to start figuring out when rock actually did finally show up. What was the first rock song? I've already eliminated a number of guesses that you might have had. It wasn't Elvis. It wasn't Jerry Lee Lewis. Hell, it wasn't even Bill Haley in the comments. But keep thinking along those lines. Especially around the word comet. You'll see the connection pretty soon now. There's a few contenders competing for the distinction of first ever rock and roll. We talked about Ike and Tina Turner in our last episode and how they were among the early luminaries in R&B. Ike had already been around a long time by the time he teamed up with Tina. If you could time trip back to 1951, you'd most likely find Ike Turner writing music and playing with a number of musicians, among them a sax player named Jackie Brentson from Turner's band The Kings of Rhythm. Ike wrote a song called Rocket 88 that Brentson sang lead on. The guitarist on Rocket 88 was a guy named Willie Kizart. Now wait till you hear the story about great things from humble beginnings. It seems that while driving to the recording session, Kizart had a flat, and while digging through his trunk for the spare, accidentally dropped the amp, and he broke the cone. Being a make-it-happen kind of guy, and to keep the amp in one piece long enough for the gig, he stuffed newspaper down inside the amp, and it held together 
But now it also had this raspy, distorted edge to it. And that's the story of the first rock recording with distortion and lyrics that use an Oldsmobile 88 to represent male sexuality. Rock's infatuation with cars was already well along by the time the Beach Boys wrote Little Deuce Coop, not to mention Janis Joplin's prayer for a Mercedes-Benz or The Boss and his trip down Thunder Road. The track was recorded at Sun Records in 1951 and produced by Sam Phillips. Two years before a young Elvis Presley sauntered into his studio to record a gift for his mother, a song named My Happiness. Evening shadows make me blue When each weary day is through How I long to be with you my happiness Every day I reminisce Dreaming of your tender kiss Always thinking how I miss My Another Southern boy, Roy Brown, from New Orleans, recorded Good Rockin' Tonight in 1947 and then followed it up with Rockin' at Midnight in 1948. Part of the problem with trying to definitively pinpoint the time and place that rock and roll came kicking and screaming out of its mother's womb is that all the people who may have been involved as artist, producer, or recording engineer have long been laid to rest. With the exception of one Joe Bahari, the former vice chairman for Modern Records, the label that gave B.B. King his first recording contract. Bahari says that it had to have been one of the black artists he was working with back in those distant and half-forgotten times. The unfortunate reason that we recognize names like Bill Haley and Elvis is because they're white. Before 1955, pretty much anything created by blacks was just dismissed by the white audience. Despite the moderate success that black R&B was finding and the few brave radio stations out there who started to program those race records, into the playlists that built an R&B audience faster than most thought possible, getting race records played in a lot of markets was tough, tough, tough. Bahari says there was very little airplay for R&B records because there were very few black DJs and very few black stations that played black music. Also, it wasn't easy, particularly in the South, for white kids to bring home black music in those years. 
Their parents frowned on it. As a result, many of the early black rockers died, unrecognized and forgotten. Even Ike's bandsman, Jackie Brentson. After Rocket 88 in 1951, his life pretty much fell apart in the alcoholic days. Jackie had a preference for drinking that really bad shit. Stuff you probably wouldn't allow in your house, not even to wash the floor. Eventually, he gave up music, got himself a Class A license, and died forgotten in 1979. Roy Brown also quit music and became a door-to-door encyclopedia salesman in the pre-internet days and died in 1983. For his own part, Ike probably deserves a bigger footprint in Rock's history. Public distaste for, among other things, his temper and his misogyny. You see, he beat the hell out of Tina Turner during most of their marriage. Has tarnished public opinion and cost him a more revered spot in rock history. There were still other artists who compete for the distinction of first rock record. Big Mama Thornton. Finally, things started changing for black rock musicians in 55. Chuck Berry released his first single, Maybelline. When you said goodbye. And Fats Domino's song, Ain't That a Shame. My chills feel like rain. Ain't that a shame? You're the one to blame. You broke. and Little Richard's Tutti Frutti all came out that same 1955 glory year in the birth of rock and roll. All three of these guys had been on the same journey, from blues and R&B to this new thing called rock. So now that we really don't have any more clarity around who wrote, produced, or recorded the first rock song than we did a little while ago, let's see if we can at least define what rock and roll is. It's always been about the feel of the music. Rebellious, adventurous, aggressive, steeped in the blues, saturated with country. And as we saw in a previous episode, rhythm and blues had its part too. As simple as it is in the 65 years since its arrival, it's never stopped evolving to reflect the spirit of the times. For this episode, I'm exploring just the first five years. 
Let's first take a look at something really basic, like chord structures. In the earliest years of rock and roll, there were just two basic chord patterns. There's a guy named Joe Burns who's a professor at Southeastern University in Louisiana. And he did a really interesting study of 100 rock and roll songs that were written and released during our 1955 through 1959 period. Out of those 100 songs, Joe counted 145 different chord progressions that were used, meaning most songs had just one simple progression. Most of the songs were written in 4-4 time. That means that there were just four beats per bar, counted out like one, two, three, four. As the 1950s progressed, more songs were written that had more than a single chord progression. Most songs used a one, four, five progression. Gonna tell and Mary about Uncle John. He claimed he has a music, but he's having a lot of fun, oh baby. Yes, baby. Woo, baby. Having me some fun tonight. Yeah. So if you're playing in the key of C, for instance, no sharps, no flats, the one chord is C major. In a one, four, five progression, the four chord would be F major. That's three more notes up from the C. And then the third chord in the progression is G major. That's four notes up the scale from C again. C, D, E, F, G. You'll hear that one, four, five progression in songs like Rock Around the Clock, Long Tall Sally, Susie Q, and Summertime Blues. Ladies and gentlemen, a good evening to you. Four times today, Adams Prize, Julius Nethel Rosenberg appealed their sentence of death, and four times they were unsuccessful. They will be executed tonight, probably within the next half hour, the first husband and wife to die in the electric chair. The president's answer came quickly. Here it is, read by a White House press officer. The following is part of a statement just issued by the president of the United States. I am convinced that the only conclusion to be drawn from the history of this case is that the Rosenbergs have received the benefit of every safeguard which American justice can provide. There is no question in my mind that their original trial and the long series of appeals constitute the fullest measure of justice and due process of law. Throughout the innumerable complications and technicalities of this case, no judge has ever expressed any doubt that they committed most serious acts of espionage. Accordingly, only most extraordinary circumstances could warrant executive intervention in the case. Now, when songs deviated away from the 1-4-5, it was mainly toward the 1-6-4-5 progression, where the 6 chord is a minor chord. In a minor chord, you flat the third note in the familiar tonic third-fifth chord structure. 
It seems like a lot of doo-wop songs used 1645, like Eddie My Love, which was written by Maxwell Davis and Aaron Collins and recorded by a doo-wop group called The Teen Queens. bit of their stuff later. Lollipop, written by Beverly Ross and Julius Dixon and recorded by the Cordettes, and I Wonder Why, written by Melvin Anderson and Ricardo Weeks and first recorded by Dion and the Belmonts. A few songs also used a one, two, four, five variation of this progression. For instance, Book of Love by the Monotones. Or Do You Want to Dance, written by Bobby Freeman, who was 17 at the time, and Oh Carol by Neil Sedaka. Let's think about another aspect of the music. Way beyond the simple construction, rock is the 20th century version of a tribal rite. It's a music that brings people together to celebrate, or to vent their frustrations, or maybe even do both at the same time. In the 50s, things were, in a lot of ways, much simpler. Mostly, for topics we hear about in Rock's early period, is what a bummer it is to have a part-time summer job, when you should be free to hang out with the guys and watch the girls in their itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny polka-dot bikinis, or what a drag it is to have to clean your room and watch out for your kid's sister. However, the baby boomers were about to hit their teen years And maybe it was the increasing hormones that made all this seem so damn serious to them. If so, it was a global phenomenon. In our last episode, we heard Ahmet Erdogan say that rock music is the only art form that's traveled around the globe like nothing before it had. Its meaning was universal. Full of teen angst, rock and roll was music to rebel by. In a prior episode, we saw how jazz, the music of the first rock generation's parents had taken a hard left turn toward intellectualism, a move that was about making a statement about black humanity. But rock brought music back to the masses. It made no demands of its audience, except to give in to its infectious rhythm. As new songs and new artists arrived on the scene, they reinforced what had come before, even as the best of them slowly pushed the boundaries. 
Rock's audience settled into a comfortable canon of work. Just like any tribal rite, there needs to be a shaman, a priest, a guru to lead the celebration. And these people have to be authentic. You can't fake that, and if you try, you'll be found out quickly. It's all in the performance and in the way the shaman walks his walk. And there's a reason why Little Richard is memorialized today. While Pat Boone is remembered as the skinny little geek, white shoes and all, that he was. An Australian journalist named Nick Basson wrote that if you want to demonize a white rock star, you probably ought to start with Pat Boone, whose covers of songs like That's Domino's, Ain't That a Shame, are musical hate crimes. Me cry when you said goodbye, ain't that a shame? My tears fell like rain. And his versions of Little Richard's Tutti Frutti and Long Tall Sally are even more abominable. When I was a kid, they used to sell these long sticks of sweet, sticky, pink bubblegum that were wrapped like cigars. No matter how hard they tried to make those things look dangerous and cool, they were no substitute for the real thing. And if you thought you were going to hang out with your big brother and his tough pack of friends with one of those stupid things in your mouth... You're only kidding yourself. Pat Boone and the rest of his ilk were the pink bubblegum cigar frauds of rock and roll. Eventually, if you were really into the scene, you figured it out and never looked back again. That story's been told many times over the decades. I mean, if you can remember, try comparing the Bay City Rollers with Led Zeppelin, for instance. Recently, I imagine it's what happened to One Direction fans, some of them finally moved on and discovered the Black Keys or the Foo Fighters or whatever. In our last episode, we heard Ruth Brown say that when the white kids started dancing to it, they called it rock and roll. Well, no one got the kids dancing more than Elvis Aaron Presley. Well, bless my soul, what's wrong with me? I'm itching like a man on a fuzzy tree. My friends say I'm acting wild as a bug. I'm in love. I'm all shook up. Ooh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Elvis, more than any other artist of his time, that smashed down the walls that separated white kids from black kids in the very heavily segregated South. Elvis was the Marco Polo of his day. Just like Polo brought Chinese culture into an unexpecting Europe, blowing its mind wide open about what lay beyond its pearly white borders, Elvis carried the forbidden black music into white homes where the music was, on account of Elvis's whiteness, suddenly acceptable. And the world was never the same again. We also wouldn't be eating spaghetti and meatballs if it weren't for Marco Polo bringing Chinese noodles into Italy.
It's the Yankees versus the Dodgers at Ebbets Field in Brooklyn, and President Eisenhower joins 34,000 other baseball fans for the opening game of the World Series. The president's arrival is the signal for a big ovation from the crowd. Out to see those World Series Monopoly boys, the Brooks and the Yanks have at it again. It's a big day all around as first the Dodgers and then their perennial fall rivals, the Yankees, are introduced to the president. The American League champs are favored as right-hander Ike tosses to Dodger catcher Roy Campanella. But the presidential favorite right now is Campy, who returns the ball to Mr. Eisenhower. So the stage is set. Yanks versus Dodgers, their seventh meeting in 15 years. Pitching for Brooklyn is the comeback guy of the year, Sal Magley. But in the first inning, Sal runs into trouble. Ino Slaughter gets a scratch single off the glove of Gil Hodges. No play at first, and Mickey Mantle is the next batter. There it goes, a home run for the Junior Circuit's triple crown winner. It's Mickey's sixth World Series home run. And here comes Slaughter home from third with the first run of the game. And behind him is the big bomber of the Bronx Bombers. That's the fourth home run Mantle has hit for the president this year. And the Yanks are off to a 2-0 lead. Whitey Ford is doing the chores for Casey Stengel. He survives the first inning when Pee Wee Reese, slicing one to the opposite field, is out on a great catch by Hank Bauer. Dodger rooters groan, but Jackie Robinson opens the Dodgers second with a home run into the left field seats. The Brooks, who clinched the pennant on the final day of the season, beating out the Braves, are rough on lefties in their home park. And Jackie Robinson, long a spark plug for them bums, gets them off and running to prove how rough it can be. 93 KHJ plays more music. And the hits just keep on coming. KHJ Los Angeles. In the same way that Elvis made people rethink music, his performance and identity made them rethink their social and moral values, too. Elvis the pelvis, maybe most especially the pelvis, was a threat to middle-class white society values, erected and defended since the end of the Civil War. He ushered in youth culture, which was going to grow, mature, and burst into full flower at Yasger's farm 15 years down the line. With it came the breakdown of sexual inhibition, which had been in the air since way before the Civil War and the end of segregation. Little Richard once said, Elvis was an integrator. He was a blessing. They wouldn't let black music through the back door, so he opened the front one. Well, that's all right, Mama. That's all right for you. That's all right, Mama. Just any way you do it, that's all right. That's all right. That's all right. Growing up poor and in total obscurity, making money driving trucks, one day in the summer of 1953, he walked into a little recording studio called Sun Records in Memphis. Suddenly, fully bloomed and completely from out of nowhere, Elvis sprang into America's consciousness like a UFO. 
Not long after that birthday gift for his mama at Sun, Elvis scored a contract with RCA Records, and his first national hit was That's All Right Mama, followed up by Heartbreak Hotel. If you're one of the very few on this planet that have never heard an Elvis song, um, do you actually live on the same planet as the rest of us? You've missed out on one of the truly original great voices of the last hundred years. A white man that sounds like a black man. That's how people described him at the time. It was his sound and the way he danced in total abandon, hips thrusting to the beat and driving the girls into a frenzy that far exceeded what the girls had once done for the young skinny crooner Frank Sinatra and wouldn't be topped again until the Beatles arrived nine years later. And finally, his incredibly great looks that hurled him to the top of the American music industry just about overnight. Suddenly, Elvis was everywhere, the radio, the movies, television, concert halls. Elvis was like a splitting wedge, a sharp-edged, heavy metal wedge used to split logs. His music, his looks, his attitude, what he represented, this was the wedge that lots of parents had worried might be coming around the corner to drive a cultural split through the middle of their families. Parents were really threatened by Elvis, and one parent took it so seriously that he sent a letter directly to J. Edgar Hoover, head of the FBI, and the letter said that Elvis was, quote, a definite danger to the security of the United States. The thing was, once those logs began to split, there wasn't any going back. Although lots of people tried, even as recently as the Trump administration, you'll remember, let's make America a racial nightmare again. Anyway, as the American novelist from Kentucky put it, people didn't know what Elvis's music was. They didn't know if it was rhythm and blues, country, or what. But whatever it was, listeners clamored for it. In an era when daytime radio was dominated by tepid crooning, quirky novelty, and chirpy innocence, here was a record by a white boy that had a flavor of juke joint music. It had the thumping abandon the driving energy of the life force itself, a thrusting and writhing and wallowing celebration. It was exactly what a country full of teenagers had been waiting for. Elvis himself put it this way, people were looking for something different and I came along just in time. I was lucky. Within a year of his first appearance on TV, Elvis had become the top-selling performer of all time. His television appearances only plunged that log splitter deeper into America's fiber. TV show hosts like Milton Berle and Steve Allen did all they could do to represent an antiseptic ready-for-the-whole-family version of Elvis, sans gyrating hips. The first appearance on Milton Berle generated a mailroom full of angry parent letters. 
Steve Allen had Elvis perform in a tux and a top hat while he sang Hound Dog to a Basset Hound. Of course, the following day, the teens were upset because that wasn't the real Elvis. Finally, Ed Sullivan had his cameraman shoot Elvis from the waist up only. Even with that, a critic at the time published that Elvis's appearance on Ed Sullivan ripped the 1950s in half, and America would never be the same. The rock and roll era had officially begun. From my perch here in 2021, and aware of everything that followed Elvis, I can't help but think of what Al Jolson said in 1927 and what Bachman Turner Overdrive sang in the 1970s. You ain't seen nothing yet. Shock rock was just a bad thought in the late night dreams of many parents at that point. And so I wonder what those 1950s parents would have thought of Slipknot or Marilyn Manson. The youngest men in America saw their girlfriends falling for Elvis. As one young girl at the time put it, he's just one big hunk of forbidden fruit. The guys were not about to lose their local standing with the apples of their desire either. Like the title to this song, Where My Ring Around Your Neck would imply. Won't you wear my So they began adopting Elvis's style, growing their hair longer into ducktail haircuts with sideburns down their cheeks, and wearing black slacks and open neck shirts. But just as much as the teens flocked to him, the older generations did everything they could to shut him down for good. Maybe old Blue Eyes was simply feeling jealous that he could no longer get the Bobby Soxers to swoon for him like they had in the 40s. But Sinatra did pick up a pen to write the following about Elvis. He wrote, His kind of music is deplorable. A rancid-smelling aphrodisiac. It fosters almost totally negative and destructive reactions in young people. Everywhere he toured, the adults did their best to block Elvis' performances. In Jacksonville, Florida, the local juvenile delinquency judge threatened to arrest him if Elvis danced on stage. Presley did everything he could to abide by the rules that were thrown up in his path, but he did say, 
Rhythm is something you either have or don't have, but when you have it, you have it all over. Even local church leaders entered the controversy, calling rock and roll devil's music. Reverend Carl Elgina was the pastor of a church in Iowa, and he told his congregation that, quote, the belief of unholy pleasure has sent the morals of our nation down to rock bottom. And the crowning addition to this day's corruption is Elvis Presleyism. In his own mind, Elvis was not rebelling against God. Nothing could have been further from the truth. Throughout his life, Elvis remained a strong Christian and reverently added gospel songs to his repertoire and his live shows through to the very end of his career. Ultimately, though, Elvis's impact on America had a profoundly positive impact, especially because of the way he brought black culture into the mainstream, such as this song by the black bluesman Arthur Crudup, My Baby Left Me. By doing this, he was chipping away at the walls of segregation that did ultimately fall by the late 1960s and early 70s. Although in recent episodes we've talked about some of the important white southern DJs that were beginning to play R&B records, for the most part, White DJs would not play black artists. It was a socially prohibited form of music in those days. It took a lot of courage for Elvis to do what he was doing. Southern segregationists were actively trying to squash his career on the belief that racial mixing would lead to the total destruction of white society and that white kids who were exposed to black culture would inevitably fall into juvenile delinquency and sexual immorality. I suppose that foolish, ignorant white men, hiding under pointy pillowcases and wearing white kimonos while burning crosses on their neighbors' lawns, was somehow moral, though? In the face of this, Elvis quite openly showed and talked about his respect for African-American performers and their music. He totally dismissed the social norms of his day when it came to racial prejudice. He was the leading end of a long trail of white rock musicians who openly paid tribute to blues and R&B. Guys like Eric Clapton, John Mayhall, the Beatles, and a lot of other people. To the folks who would accuse Elvis of cultural appropriation, I just say listen to what Elvis said in a 1957 interview with Jet Magazine. He said, A lot of people seem to think I started this business. But rock and roll was here a long time before I came along. Nobody can sing that kind of music like color people. Let's face it, I can't sing it like Fats Domino can. I know that. But I always liked that kind of music. I used to go to the colored churches when I was a kid. In a June 56 interview with the Charlotte Observer, Elvis talked about the heritage of his music like this. The colored folks been singing it and playing it just like I'm doing now for more years than I know. They played it like that in the shanties and in their juke joints and nobody paid it no mind till I goose it up. I got it from them down in Tupelo, Mississippi. I used to hear old Arthur Crudup band his box the way I do now. And I said if I ever got to the place I could feel all old Arthur felt, I'd be a music man like nobody ever saw. Color to Elvis 
didn't exist. Being poor, he'd been raised in a downtrodden neighborhood in Tupelo, Mississippi, with black neighbors everywhere. His family lived the same kind of life as any poor black family, and that's how it was for many poor white Southerners. Once you reached a certain level, the rest of white society stamped certain people as outsiders. So the Presleys shared the same living conditions, the same stunting effects of poverty, the same lack of respect, and the same searching for a way out. As the rock and roll photo archivist Michael Oakes has said, Elvis Presley had a black soul with a white face. Many of the artists that I've been talking about in this episode, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, Little Richard, these guys were able to climb as high as they did in their careers because of what Elvis did. And the opportunities were just not available in music. As society gradually became more accepting though, jobs of all types, even in music, opened up for African Americans. Grail Marcus is a music critic who, probably more than anyone else, chronicled the long career of America's poet, Nobel laureate, and prolific songwriter, Bob Dylan. Marcus once wrote this about Elvis. Because of Elvis's arrival, because of who he was and what he became, because of his event and what we made of it, the American past from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement, from Jonathan Edwards to Abraham Lincoln, it all looks different than it would have looked without him. Because of that event, the future has possibilities that would have been otherwise foreclosed. Presley's impact on American culture went far beyond what he even imagined. And in 1958, the king of rock and roll became Sergeant Presley when he joined the army. While stationed in Germany, he drove a truck for an officer named Captain Russell. Being in the service for a two-year period, Elvis was out of the music industry. And that was a time where the music industry itself was changing a lot. Also, while in the service, one of his buddies got him hooked on amphetamines. And that was the beginning of Elvis's long downward slide that came to a pretty sad end when he died at home, morbidly obese and drug-addled, sitting on the toilet. Monkey named Sam is made comfortable in a form-fitting couch lined with shock-absorbent plastic foam. Specially trained, the seven-pound rhesus monkey will ride into space to help chart the way for future human astronauts. He's sealed in a 100-pound biopack container, and a mock-up of the capsule being prepared for the Mercury astronauts takes it along. The rocket's called the Little Joe. 55 miles into space in 13 minutes. Then the capsule, separated from the booster rocket, parachutes into the Atlantic 200 miles from the launching site at Wallops Island, Virginia. And here you see it lifted out of rough seas onto the deck of the destroyer Boring. Sam
Amazon, they're all right, alive, kicking, and happy, having helped test emergency escape mechanism for tomorrow's human astronauts. Billy Brown, the smoothest, coolest guy in town. The chicks all seem to dig his jive. Hey, tell us, Bill, how can we arrive? It's easy, Jack. Any gal gets sent. When you flash a smile by Pepsodent, you'll wonder where the yellow went when you brush your teeth with Pepsodent. Pepsodent's new, improved formula cleans teeth whiter than ever. Tastes brighter, too. New formula Pepsodent contains IMP. There's nothing else as good at getting teeth white. You'll wonder where the yellow went when you brush your teeth with Pepsodent. Alongside Elvis, Chuck Berry is remembered as the seminal founder of rock and roll. Some call him the father of rock and roll. Elvis had opened white people's minds to listen to black music with less prejudice. I wish I could say without any prejudice, period. But Barry was able to build an audience with white kids. He came out of a middle-class background, and this also gave him natural empathy with white suburban teens, like the Beatles after him, and were heavily influenced by him. Chuck Berry once said his success was grounded in being able to say things in his music the same way the kids thought those things. He broke through the color barrier, something Elvis never had to do. And being from St. Louis instead of the South also made it easier for him to write songs that mirrored teenage experiences. His parents lived in heavily segregated North St. Louis, where Chuck was born in 1926. He was three years old before he saw his first white person, a firefighter battling a fire. His father had to explain that, no, Chuck, he wasn't white because he was scared of the fire. White people look like that all the time. At age six, he began singing in his church choir, but he didn't actually start playing guitar until high school. Chuck was also a bit of a rebel. By 17, he was sentenced to 10 years in jail when he and a couple of friends found a pistol in a parking lot and used it to hold up a few small businesses. Let out after three years for good behavior, his music career began when a friend asked him to join his band. XCRV moves up! 930 in Los Angeles. This is 50,000 Watt Clear Channel XCRB, Radio North America, Central Studios, Los Angeles, 1090 on your dial. In Washington, a special committee winds up a series of stormy discussions by passing a vote condemning the actions of a colleague, Senator McCarthy. Wearing his arm in a sling following an accident to his elbow, the senator takes the rebuke with a grim smile. Soon, he says, he'll begin further probes for communists in America. I heard you want to be a Frito Bandido like me. You do? Then you must sing the Bandido song. Let's sing together. You just follow the bouncing Frito's corn chips bag. Ay, 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 ay. I am the Frito Bandido. Yay! I like Frito's corn chips. I love them, I do. I want Frito's corn chips. I'll get them from you. 
Chuck took a fateful trip to Chicago in 1955, where he met blues legend Muddy Waters. Barry had just written Maybelline. Waters advised Chuck to go meet the people at Chess Records, and when Barry played the song for them, they put him on a contract immediately. The song went to number one on the R&B charts and number five on the pop charts. First time at bat, and Chuck hits a home run. Radio stations around St. Louis were divided on race lines. The white stations played country music for white audiences. The black stations played R&B for black audiences. Chuck was a fan of both kinds of music. As a musician, he found early on that he could expand his audience by playing to both sides. He created a sound that took the best from country and R&B, and it made Chuck and his band a very in-demand outfit. His early gigs were local dances at a club called The Cosmo, and the band just got better with time. That was the point when white audiences started showing up to his gigs. These were also the years when Chuck perfected his famous duck walk, hillbilly stomp, and his chicken peck moves. Just like he was blending black and white music, Barry pushed hard for desegregation. He turned his fan club headquarters into a small club where white and black kids could dance together. It was the only biracial business, not just in St. Louis, but actually in the entire state of Missouri. Of course, the police didn't like that real well. Chuck used to tell a story about a mixed couple who, driving home from his club one night, got pulled over and dragged down to the station for a mandatory venereal disease shot. With the amount of pushback he was getting everywhere in the South, Barry headed for a tour of New England, where his optimism about the future of the country was reignited. Up there, black and white kids mixed, danced, and had fun together. It happened at all his shows. He went back to St. Louis, determined to make it happen there too. To give mixed concerts and dances a place to thrive, Chuck opened a place called Barry Park a biracial country club complete with a lodge for overnight guests and a guitar-shaped swimming pool. Originally coming from an R&B background, his songs and lyrics about fast cars, dances, and above all rock and roll won him a large teenage following. Songs like Roll Over Beethoven and Rock and Roll Music hit the right chord with the first true teenage generation loving the Just Born Rebel music that was fast becoming the soundtrack to their unique lives. More than anything, it was Barry's rhythms that the kids loved so much. His songs had an infectious energy that gave permission to the behaviors and feelings that most of repressive 1950s America 
said were strictly taboo. In 1960, Chuck was pulled over while giving two white girls a ride on their journey to the next state over. For this, he did three years in federal prison for violating the Mann Act, an anti-prosecution law that said you could not carry a minor across a state line for the purpose of having sex. Ever the optimist, Barry put the time to really good use. He wrote a couple of his classic songs, Nadine, and You Can Never Tell, he got his high school diploma, and he learned accounting so he could manage his own money in the future. Barry defined rock and roll. His songs ran a yellow highlighter over the cultural dividing line that now separated the generations. You could see the gap most clearly in the audience's love for rock music and the new, freer racial attitudes they wore on their sleeves. As much as Barry defined the music, the fans also defined him. But it wasn't just on the teens where Chuck Berry made his indelible mark. You can also include the legions of rockers that followed him, including Keith Richards in the Rolling Stones, George Harrison in the Beatles, Bruce Springsteen, Pete Townsend, ACDC, Emmy Lou Harris, The Beach Boys, Jimi Hendrix, Elvis, Lenny Kravitz, Questlove, The Roots, The Grateful Dead, Motorhead, and Bob Seger. Also among these was one John Winston Lennon. From 1972, here's John on the Mike Douglas Show introducing his childhood hero and jamming with him. John, as we were saying earlier, yeah. although you had this admiration for Chuck yeah. for this many years, yeah. today was the first actual meeting. I met him, yeah. I think he's the greatest. I really love him. It's Let's an honor to be here backing him. That's very lovely. You want to handle this introduction? Yeah. If you were to try, to try and give rock and roll another name, you might call it Chuck Berry, right? In the 1950s, the whole generation worshipped his music, and when you see him perform today, past and present all come together, and the message is, hail, hail, rock and roll, right on. Here he is, Chuck Berry!
NASA even got into the act. When Voyager 1 was launched in 77, Johnny B. Good was the only rock and roll song included in Earth's message in a bottle sent out to the universe. that invitation. Like so many people these days, we live in the suburbs, and Dave needs the car every day for business. When he was gone, I was practically a prisoner in my own home. I couldn't get out to see my friends, couldn't take part in PTA activities. I couldn't even shop when I wanted to. I had to wait till Thursday night after Dave brought the car home. But that's all changed now. Three weeks ago, we bought another Ford. The new, low-priced, custom-line Victoria. Isn't it stunning? Dave has it all to himself. And I now have the ranch wagon all to myself. It's a whole new way of life. Now I'm free to go anywhere, do anything, see anybody anytime I want to. It's only good common sense. Why be stuck with one expensive car when you can enjoy all the fun and freedom of two fine Fords? Today, more and more families are finding out how easy it is to become two Ford families. You can choose from 20 different models, colors galore, and each available with Thunderbird power, with styling inspired by the famous Ford Thunderbird, and each with the extra protection of Ford's lifeguard design. See your Ford dealers soon. CBS Television presents a special report on Sputnik 1, the Soviet space satellite. Douglas Edwards reporting. Until two days ago, that sound had never been heard on this earth. Suddenly, it has become as much a part of 20th century life as the whir of your vacuum cleaner. It's a report from man's farthest frontier, the radio signal transmitted by the Soviet Sputnik, the first man-made satellite as it passed over New York earlier today. One of the places where the progress of the satellite is being watched most closely is the Hayden Planetarium in New York. CBS News correspondent Richard C. Hottelet reports from there now. Doug, we're in the great dome of the Hayden Planetarium in New York, and I have with me Dr. Kenneth Franklin, an astronomer on the planetarium staff. Dr. Franklin, can you tell us where the Sputnik is now and how it's moving? Right now it's north of Auckland, New Zealand, and moving southeast. It will be, in 10 minutes, about 1,500 miles north of Little America. And in about 24 minutes, it will be uh, over Santiago, Chile. And in about 50 minutes from now, it will be over Spain. Well, it looks as though it will be missing the United States on this trip. That's quite correct. It will. But it does come over here periodically, doesn't it? It comes over here at least twice a day and maybe more. 
Uh, getting back to this track, is it possible that it is transmitting a code, not just a beep signal for uh, radio uh, listening? Yes, it's quite possible that it's transmitting a code, uh, but we don't uh, realize what the code is, of course. Hundreds of miles in space, the satellite's instruments start collecting data, sending it back in the form of radio signals. A pilotless spaceship man's advance scout in outer space. Like all the other genres we've talked about so far on this podcast, radio is instrumental in the rise of rock and roll. Alan Freed was rock's first and maybe greatest promoter, his, the cheerleader, and most sincere fan. He left his imprint on every aspect of the rock scene in his day. First, he won over Cleveland with his show on WJW. Later, he moved his show to New York City at WINS. And along the way, he wrote songs that appeared on the four albums he made, promoted the music bringing countless performers to a national audience, and had important roles in early rock movies like Don't Knock the Rock, Rock Around the Clock, and Rock, 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 where he played himself. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the West River Club. We're very happy to have you with us tonight, and we're really going to rock and roll. This is yours truly, Alan Free, the old king of the rock and rollers, and you're going to meet two of the most exciting combinations you've ever met in your life. And here they are, the Ernie Freeman combo with the sensational recording group, The Platters. Here's Alan Freed introducing the platters in Rock Around the Clock. Each of these films cost a couple of hundred bucks to produce, but they made millions. Unfortunately, the payola scandal also made Freed one of Rock's first scapegoats. Considering that plenty of other famous names in Rock have also been scapegoats, like John Lennon, the Beatles as a group, Eminem and others, I'd say that Freed's in pretty good company. Born in Pennsylvania in 1922, mostly raised in Ohio, Freed started off as a musician with a band called The Sultans of Swing. With the Sultans With the Sultans of Swing He went to Ohio State, but the war interrupted things, and he was eventually discharged due to an ear infection. Once out, he studied broadcasting in night school, while working a government job day gig where he inspected military plants. His first DJ job was at WKST in Newcastle, PA, and then WAKR. In these pre-rock days, he played hot jazz and pop songs. His real shot came in 1950 when he was invited to substitute at WJW, a classical music station. Hello, everybody. Hi, y'all. This is Alan Free, the old king of the Moondoggers, and a hearty welcome to all our thousands of friends in northern Ohio, Ontario, Canada, western New York, western Pennsylvania, West Virginia. 
Along about 11.30, 15 minutes from now, we'll be joining the Moondog Network. Joining all us folks around the Cleveland area here will be thousands of listeners over in New York City and New Jersey who listen to us over in Newark, New Jersey station every night. Good old Aaron Brew, Formula 1002, Northern Ohio's largest selling beer. Make it possible for us to be with you a whole extra half hour on Saturday nights. We'll be here till 2.30 in the morning and operator 210 is at the WJW switchboard to take your telephone request. When you're calling in, play it cool when you call. We'll get to your request as soon as we can. Pop the cap, have a good ball wherever you are. Enjoy Aaron Brew, 1002, and the Moondog Show. Instead of following format, he played R&B songs all night. He was fired the next day, but the public response had been amazing. The station was flooded with requests for the songs Freed had been playing, and they rehired him. By 1951, Freed had the number one show in Cleveland under the name Moondog's Rock and Roll Party. Freed was calling himself Moondog. Now, there's two possible sources of where the name Moondog might have come from. Option A. There was a song by the Dominoes called 60 Minute Man. Come up and take my hand When I let you go you'll cry Oh yes, he's a 60 minute man There'll be 15 minutes of kissing Then you holler, please don't stop There'll be 50 minutes teasing And 50 minutes squeezing And 50 minutes of blowing my top Treating you right Come up and see old Dan I'll rock em, roll em all night long I'm a 60 minute man 60 minute man Call him to love and then I'll rock roll The second option is more interesting. Since the 1940s, there had been a blind homeless guy named Thomas Harden. But using the name Moondog, he was living at the corner of West 54th and 6th Avenue in Midtown Manhattan. With a long flowing beard and dressed in Viking garb, he wrote poems, and he played homemade percussion instruments for anyone who'd throw him a quarter. Everyone thought he was nuts. Few people knew what a highly respected American composer he was recording for several record labels, and highly praised by Leonard Bernstein and Duke Ellington, and sometimes making children's records with Julie Andrews before she'd made it big. As Moondog's dance party got to be a bigger thing, Thomas Harden decided he'd cash in. He got himself a lawyer, and Freed ended up having to drop the name, and changed his show to Alan Freed's Rock and Roll Party. Anyway, It was Alan Freed that hung the name rock and roll on the new music. He did it to move past the racial slurs whites had for the music. What's funny, though, is that rock and roll is what the blacks used to call sex at the time. dance party tonight featuring the flamingos chuck berry and frankie lyman and the teenagers and here we go and the man taylor big al sears and haywood henry our big three from our sax section and 
Presto! his prominence, position, and connections to become the first rock and roll concert promoter. Between 1955 and 1959, he produced no less than 19 rock concerts at the Brooklyn Paramount Theater, featuring the biggest stars of the time. Over those short five years, his shows promoted the Moonglows, the Penguins, Tony Bennett, Chuck Berry, the Platters, the Flamingos, Ruth Brown, Little Richard, the Diamonds, Buddy Holly and the Crickets, King Curtis, the Del Vikings, the Chantels, Screaming Jay Hawkins, Jerry Lee Lewis, the Everly Brothers, Chuck Berry, Frankie Avalon, Jackie Wilson, Eddie Cochran, Richie Valens, Bo Diddley, Dion and the Belmonts, and Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks. This band was actually the forerunner to Bob Dylan's electric backing band, The Hawks, and they also later on became The Band. Around the same time, this obscure little band called The Quarrymen changed their name to Johnny and the Moondogs, a brief detour on the way to becoming a band called The Beatles. By now, Freed's place in the world had really changed. By 1959, he could look back just five years and see how his income had gone from 15000 a year to 750000 a year. In today's terms, that would be over $7 million a year. What happened next was a surprise to everyone. The House Subcommittee on Legislative Oversight, chaired by Arkansas Democrat Orrin Harris, had been snooping around in a very McCarthyism kind of way. And Freed's number came up. It turned out he'd been accepting money from the record labels to play some of the music on his show. From a legal perspective, the government controls the airwaves, and radio was supposed to be impartial to what was being played. Payola, though, meant that radio stations weren't acting objectively, and supposedly this was hurting some recording artists. By this time, Freed was on contract with ABC. And they fired him because he wouldn't sign a contract that denied he'd ever accepted any pay-for-play. Next stop was a court hearing where he refused to testify, and a month later, uh, NYPD arrested him on charges of having accepted a total of $30,000 from six labels in return for radio plugs. Although it had the look and smell of government properness about it, this was really Freed's refusal to back down from his all-out loyalty and support of rock music. The old guard in the recording industry had taken an offense, and Freed took the fall for a practice that was basically standard practice all over the music industry. From a legal perspective, the most he finally faced was a suspended sentence of six months in jail and a $300 fine. But the old guard had gotten what they were actually after. They destroyed his career and eventually his life. Freed left New York, had a short stint as an L.A. DJ, and then took another in Miami 
But nothing stuck. The worse things got, the more he drank. In Miami, he only lasted two months on the job. He moved to Palm Springs and spent his last days alone, calling old friends in the music industry to beg for rent or grocery money. In 1965, he went into the hospital with a case of blood poisoning, and he died there. The man who'd put rock and roll on the map had died alone, penniless, at the relatively young age of 43. The final insult, though, came way after his death. Allen was posthumously honored with a place in Cleveland's Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1986, and an urn with Freed's ashes was there from then until 2014. Allen's son, Lance, described its removal as an eviction. The 1950s have traditionally been seen with nostalgic reverence. From behind rose-colored lenses that colored the world in the sticky sweetness of childhood and high school crushes, rock and roll had its birth and childhood in this half-remembered, half-fantasized world. But in 1959, some of the greatest acts in rock's early history had died, and the man who put the music on the map had been silenced. The reigning king of rock had joined the army and would never be the same again. The future certainly looked uncertain. In future episodes, we'll see rock grow up and take on more of the social, cultural, political, and economic profile of a full-fledged adult in an increasingly complex world. We'll see you next time on American Song. Folks, thanks again for listening in this week. If you enjoyed the, the episode, I'd like to invite you to go over and visit our Facebook page, and you can learn a whole lot more about the artists that um, made up uh, early rock and roll and rockabilly and Western swing. Um, also, we always post all of our sources for each episode there in that uh, Facebook page of ours. So I welcome you to go do that. Anyways, keep rocking, you guys.